You get a little bit of Maverick. He's he's dodging the bolts. Highway to the danger zone. It is so good. So good. Welcome back to Shad on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the juggernaut HBO series, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. And this is our deep dive episode where we look back at this week's episode of Game of Thrones and share our insights, research, and opinions. This week's episode was titled The Bells. Big D, what do you think? So obviously on yesterday's cast, I was a bit conflicted. Uh, and once we were done recording, you know, I did some social media stuff. You edited, then we we posted. My wife works for Delta, and she works late night. So she got home, I think, like 1 o'clock. And I said, you going to bed? And she's like, why? I said, if you're going to watch Game of Thrones, I'm going to stay up with you. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I'll watch it. So I sat down there probably like 1.15 in the morning and watched it a second time. My second viewing was different than the first. And I, and I don't want people to think I'm I'm – changing to what the general audience thinks or what a majority of the watchers think but second time through i kind of removed all my personal expectations where i thought it should have gone and just let it go where it was going to go and for the sheer spectacle of it just to sit back and and take your side of it and be like you fuck yeah burn king's landing let's do it it was much more enjoyable i could understand why people liked it i still have the same problems with it and i still wish it had gone a different way but guess what? It didn't. And for that, I could enjoy it and see it was not a complete unmitigated disaster. It just maybe wasn't what I wanted. I never thought I'd see the day when I was defending Game of Thrones on social media. Me. People were like, thanks, Gene, for your refreshingly optimistic take on it. Yes. yes. Relish this because it'll never happen again. Me, Gene Lyons. I spent all night, morning and afternoon don't tell my boss, defending the Double Ds and Game of Thrones on very personal points. People were just talking about the fact they didn't like the episode. People have been saying things like, these guys are lazy, they can't write, they ruined our favorite characters, they threw away arcs, they made the show unwatchable. And a lot of people started calling me the, some sort of a Game of Thrones apologist. I'm the guy who was saying bullshit to scorpions hitting Rhaegal three times. I'm the guy saying bullshit to the death count at Winterfell and how everybody should have been dead. And just like you sort of mitigated your position, I'm probably going to make it worse for myself by mitigating my position. But I want to set some expectations here and really clarify. I think that episodes one and two were the best of this season. And I think as you go back in time in Game of Thrones, it gets better and better. I don't think that this is the pinnacle of achievement for Game of Thrones. In fact, I think everything since season five has really been a drop in quality with the exclusion of Battle of the Bastards. I also have to be realistic about it and understanding about it. And I think that we have a team here with the team that made Game of Thrones that worked very hard to try to satisfy an audience that cannot be satisfied. And I know that I'm just an amateur podcaster, but I think people really underestimate how much it hurts to devote yourself to something for that long and that deeply and have people question your dedication. Like people who think the showrunners care less about the show than they do, 
maybe the cast, but I would say the people who are involved in, in filming this thing and editing this thing and putting these storylines together, I think they did give it their best shot. Does that make it okay? No, but personal attacks seem a bit out of bounds. Most people on either side of the argument took this so personal that it shocked me. I understand the viewers, like us. I said, we, we dedicate 20 to 30 hours of our lives each week to this show. So we feel like we have a right to say. We feel like we have some skin in the game. But people, whether you love the show and you're like, this is the greatest thing ever. You're stupid. Don't shit on my dreams. I deserve this. You guys just shit on things. That side takes it personal. And then the other side who's like, I've been reading the books for years. I've been waiting. Boo-hoo. This isn't what I wanted. It was shocking to see adults reduced down to this childhood banter, screaming back and forth like, you suck. No, you suck. It was something I haven't seen in a while. And it, I mean, it just shows that everybody cares. The best part is when people use the term investment. I invested <laughs> yeah. 10 years of my life in watching this TV show. Like your asses aren't also watching The Walking Dead and everything else on TV. Relax. It's TV. Enjoy. God, can you imagine what would happen? God forbid. I mean, George is not in good health. He's an older gentleman. Doesn't seem to take too much care of himself. If George goes out, if George, you know, rides the stallion off into the sky without finishing these books, people, some people are going to melt down. Now, there is the rumor that he's finished the last two books. Uh, I think it was spread by the actor that played uh, Sir Barristan Selmy. They're just waiting. There's a gentleman's agreement between the TV show and George R.R. R. Martin that the books won't be released until after the show is over. So you honestly believe that his publisher is sitting there like, oh, it's okay. We don't want to publish these books. You know, when is this show going to be any hotter? Yep, we'll wait until the show cools off before we publish. I don't think that's how these these big time publishing houses work. They would be banging on the door saying, put these books out now. It's like the guys on Bald Move said, if there was any equity in this brand, it might be completely destroyed now. But hey, at least he's got a litmus test and he can go, hey, you know what? That ending did not work. Yeah, this was their dry run. There was a great look at what went wrong here uh, by Daniel Silverman, who is a professor at University of Connecticut and also U of A alum. He broke it down into the concept of plotters versus pantsers. After reading this, I think he's onto something. And the idea is that you have plotters who are the type of writers that outline the entire storyline, all the key points of the plot that are supposed to happen. And then they write to fill in the gaps in between. And these people can write very tight work. So if you think about like a lot of the movies that we cover in Shat the Movies, 80s and 90s movies that we say are, are tight, they're written in this way. You can pack a lot in a 90 minutes, get through a ton of plot points, and everything makes sense. There's no logic breaches. It just fits together. It clicks. And then you got pantsers. And pantsers, what they do is they write, as the name implies, kind of by the seat of their pants. They'll create the characters. And then as they plant the seeds of these characters, they just write to what seems reasonable for that character. So you're actually inventing this world, and you don't know where it's going to go. Your drafts are essentially what you think the characters would do when they interact with each other in the world around them. The problem with pantsers is those stories can ramble. And I think George R. R. Martin is definitely a pantser. If you read Game of Thrones books, a lot of times you spend a lot of time doing weird things and weird places, weird conversations, but it all comes together and it feels so real. It's, it's kind of his magic, right? He does fantasy, but it feels real because the characters feel so real. And what we might have here is a conflict between the two things. You've got a pantser like George R. R. Martin making this sprawling world. And every time he tries to write a book, it sprawls out further. And so he's got 
more characters to deal with and more storylines to deal with and prophecies and all this stuff. And you got plotters, perhaps like the Double Ds or the HBO writing staff, who are trying to fit in plot points for a final season to make it all come together. And what happens is a big mess uh, where you can't reconcile the two things. And I don't think it's fair to blame anybody for that. It's just two different writing styles that are converging uh, in a disaster. Yeah, the, the style of writing is a pantser. That works, I think, if you're doing something small. You're doing a story about 10 people, maybe. As you're weaving in this ever larger growing world, you have to maintain that one rule that people will act in a logical way. As if you have 40, 50 characters with an interweaving plot, I can't imagine how you would do it. And then just tack onto it. When George did these first few books, they were popular, but they weren't to where they are now. That immense pressure to make it work and to maintain the level of quality that he's had so far, I'm surprised the man hasn't dropped dead. Hats off. How, however he's done it, I just hope he finishes it out. Make everybody happy because in the end, if we didn't care, if it was a shit show, we wouldn't be podcasting. People wouldn't be talking. People wouldn't be writing emails. So uh, we should appreciate it for what we have. I know everyone's out there sitting in their cars at their desks at work, and they're thinking, all right, guys, shut up. Let's talk about Daenerys. So let, let's do that. I think the biggest debate this week is Daenerys the Mad Queen? Did she fulfill what you kind of outlined in your essay uh, from last episode? Or was she just being a brutal conqueror? And she's you know quite sane, but just maybe a bit more violent than people would expect. First off, I want to give credit to one of our Twitter followers, Sharona SZN. And she was the first one that picked up what was going on in the beginning with Varys, that he was working with that little bird who worked in the kitchen. He wasn't getting information on Daenerys. They were actively trying to poison Daenerys. And he said, you know, greater the risk, the greater the reward. We'll try again at dinner. So Varys was actively engaged in trying to kill the queen. Makes her understandably, you know, suspicious. She's already paranoid. Then you compound that with she's just lost another one of her children recently in Rhaegal. Uh, she's recently lost her two closest friends, Jorah and Missandei. Uh, she's been betrayed romantically, and that night, rejected by the man she loves, John. She realizes finally that she's not loved in this new place of Westeros like she was in Essos, and that she probably never will be. And that makes her question her identity and her purpose. And she's always been driven by her belief that she was destined to lead. She was destined to take the Iron Throne. And I think that all of these things, this mix, just builds into a rage and even though I would have loved to have seen something on screen where we can definitively say that sparked her decision, that sparked her decision. In, in talking before we hit record, you brought up a good thing. I hadn't even considered that before she went out, she had already decided, I'm going to burn every little thing. Two things that we saw on screen really made that point for Daenerys. One was Missandei's execution. It's important to note that Game of Thrones very rarely has a throwaway scene. And this scene, I think, maybe didn't hit the mark with a lot of people, but it certainly did with me. And it was the idea that you have this person, as we discussed on the small council, who is an emissary of peace, uh, who comes from a peaceful place, who is captured, is no threat to Cersei whatsoever. And the rules used to be, in this world of Westeros, that there was a degree of if not chivalry, decorum to this sort of a meeting. That Daenerys 
is doing what is asked of her by her advisors and meeting, having that parlay, offering peace. And the response isn't no, or we'll see you in battle tomorrow. It is to actively execute one of her ambassadors, essentially, right in front of her. And at that moment, we see a visible change in Daenerys. It's important to note that Missandei has been within the city walls. She has seen Cersei. She's seen what's going on uh, with Kyburn and with the mountain and with the military and with the people of the city. Everything's going on within those walls. And her judgment as a person of peace is to burn it. I think Daenerys trusts that. Those are her last words. And then that's echoed uh, by the scene at the fireplace between Grey Worm and Daenerys. Daenerys says, this is the last belonging that Masunde brought with her. And it was that collar. And she hands it to Grey Worm. He throws it into the fire. And that is Grey Worm signaling to Daenerys that he's on board as well. There is no going back for the two of them. They are going in there to kill. And I was proud of them for that decision. So to me, it was a clear indication that was the match that lit the fuse. If she wanted to take the Iron Throne, it was already mission accomplished. She was there. If she's gone mad, then she was indifferent to the fact that she was going to take the Iron Throne. And it was just vengeful. It was just spite. Then all of this was done not with her original intent, because the war is won. The bells of King's Landing, they've been rung. The Lannister army has laid down their swords. The people are ready to bow down to Daenerys. They're screaming out for her. Ring the bells, ring the bells. Daenerys, people can question her style of rule. She's always been fairly patient. She was never in a giant rush. I mean, we questioned, we said, come on, get out of Marine. How long are you going to be there? If she had only decided to wait a little bit longer, she could have easily had the troops come into the city, take the Red Keep. But inexplicably, in that moment, she seems to decide to lay waste. You know, your claim is that maybe she'd originally decided it, but she had Drogon sitting on the walls. She was looking around. The bells were ringing. The people were in the streets. Mission accomplished. Everybody is afraid of Drogon. They've seen what you've done. The people are bowing down. The masses are ready to just accept you, which has always been her goal. But then all of a sudden, something happens. And whether it's that vengeance, whether it's it's pettiness, whether it's some some drive above her originally stated goal, she decides everyone has to pay, even those who don't deserve to die. She very strategically starts off taking out the Iron Fleet, and then she goes off and takes out all the Scorpions. The city is essentially defenseless. No man with a sword is going to take out Drogon. She's essentially safe in that case. She even surveys the area to, to sort of make sure. I don't believe that moment's hesitation she had was her cracking and deciding to kill. I think it was more that she heard the bells, remembered what Tyrion said, and considers mercy. Now, the showrunners did say that she looks to the Red Keep, and you do see that there's a clear shot of the Red Keep off in the distance. And it's important to note that this wasn't Cersei ringing the bells. This was the people of the of the city ringing the bells. And so this was their call for, for mercy. But I think as Daenerys is perched up there, I'm trying to get in her head. And I think the streets of King's Landing are filled with all kinds of things. A lot of those things are soldiers and supplies. If you're looking down and you see that these guys have surrendered, this Lannister army has surrendered, their swords are down, what more opportune time to begin their wholesale slaughter? It's not fair. It's a war crime for sure. But I don't think Daenerys accepted surrender and Grey Worm didn't accept surrender. I think we're meant to see the degree of their rage and their pain and their fear. They offered peace. 
that piece was rejected. And I feel for them, they've crossed Rubicon. There is no going back. And that explains their actions. Is it justifiable? Perhaps not. But it's reasonable in their headspace. D.B. Weiss contradicts kind of your thought where it was her plan from the onset that in the inside edition that's on after the episode, he said that Daenerys had decided to burn King's Landing because as she sat there looking at the Red Keep, in that moment, she was looking at the symbol of everything that had been taken away from her, that she decided to make it personal. It was no longer about her goal to take the city, to make the world a better place for everybody who lives in it, to break the wheel. Because in that moment of chaos, she had forgotten to show one of her true core fundamental beliefs that Daenerys, she was the breaker of change. She personally saved women from being raped by the Dothraki. She freed the unsullied and countless other slaves. She took Yun Kai, Astapor, and Marine with minimal bloodshed. And she succeeded in creating that better world for people that she had promised. No doubt it was personal for her. I don't disagree on that. I, I don't think it was purely strategic in that sense. Like It wasn't like she sat down and went, how can I make this a better world for me or an easier reign for me by killing all these people? She's just done with it. Daenerys has hit a point where she looks at every turn in life and every single turn has made things worse and worse and worse ever since she got her dragons, essentially, right? And this is the culmination of all that failure to the point where she doesn't care about building a better world anymore or doesn't care about improving people's lives. And I don't think that necessarily equates to madness. It's frustration and anger. See, I think there was a happy medium between the two different sides, between accepting the surrender or what she did was systematically sweeping up and down every street and burning every house. I mean, she could have taken this moment to triumph. She wants to rule, leave some of the city behind. But the anger, the rage, she could have directed that directly at Cersei, who deserved it. Direct it at the Red Keep. This is the symbol of everything that she had had. Her family built it however many years ago. I think an option that she should have taken, fly in, burn the Red Keep to the ground, burn maybe 10% of the city, instill that fear that the people will never shake. She could have done that, accomplished a goal, left some city to rule, and I think it would have been fine. But there's something about going up and down every street that no one was going to survive that seems to be excessive. And that's the only reason where people are really questioning her stability right now. Taking out the red keep first almost might have made you a hero. You know, the people feel oppressed by Cersei. They've had years of mistreatment at the hands of Lannisters and Targaryens. And you take out that symbol that's watching over them all the time. And maybe the people cheer for you. You might have some collateral damage, some building parts fall on entire neighborhoods. At this moment, I thought this was a masterstroke by Game of Thrones as I'm watching it alone in my living room. I felt like Game of Thrones peered into my head and my heart the way a good book does. You know, when you're reading a book and you feel that kinship with the author uh, that brings you closer to a stranger than you've ever been with anybody in your life. That's that's how I feel about books. I felt like Daenerys was looking around as those bells are ringing, and she looks over at the Red Keep, and I could hear that voice in my own head. What do you do now? You've knocked out their defenses. You've knocked out their military. What do you do now? You talk? You're going to reason with Cersei? There's no safety with her. And then an extension of that is there's no safety here. Everybody here is here to kill you. Everybody here is here to hurt you. And none of this is ever end. Let's just burn it all down. It's the safe choice. 
I never thought I would have seen it. You know, you burn it down if you have to. But when she starts going, and the second time I enjoyed it much more, I was like, fuck, I cannot believe we're seeing this. And I still wish that Drogon's fire didn't seem like some kind of a plasma torch that just liquefies rock. This was like some kind of supernatural weapon above a fire-breathing dragon. But I have to ask, how does the destruction of all of King's Landing, burning of tens of thousands of, of, of innocent people, how does that help her now lead? Uh, listener Sam Troy wrote it, and he's like, I think it's important to remember that citizens of King's Landing are in no way innocent at all. These are people who cheered for Ned's beheading, who cursed and laughed at Cersei being paraded naked through the streets. And throughout the series, the main characters have made a point to always note the level of depravity and evil that these innocent people have sunk to and how much of a cesspit the city has become. And that might answer the question as to why people had to die. I disagree with your assessment that the the people of King's Landing somehow deserved it. They're uneducated. They're poor. They only know what they've been told. Ned Stark admitted that he had committed treason. He confessed to it. So, of course, they're going to cheer his beheading. Just because we care about Ned, they don't know. They're uneducated. And the show is told from the perspective of the elite. We're not following around some peasant through their daily chores. The elite, of course, are going to look down upon the, the poor peasants of King's Landing. But regardless of whatever, they deserved it or not, the humans have just beaten the biggest threat to, to their survival, the White Walkers up north. And Davos had made a reference early on about trying to unite people against a common enemy. And he said, if we don't put aside our enmities and band together, we will die. And then it doesn't matter whose skeleton sits on the Iron Throne. And this seems even more prophetic given what happens in episode five. If you don't think about coming together and about the after, you're doomed to fail. By destroying King's Landing, Daenerys is guaranteed that her ability to effectively lead and maintain control is going to be 10 times more difficult. The survivors of the massacre, they know exactly who burned their neighbors, their friends, their children, their family. Does she not think that undoubtedly they're going to at some point seek revenge if any opportunity arose? I feel like nobody's listening to Daenerys. And I mean that from the sense of the audience. Like Daenerys said it herself in that scene with Jon when she kisses him and notices that he is not into it. It's going to be fear. She's seen that the Westerosi will not trust or love her. They just won't. It's not something that she can build. But fear is something that's quite easy to instill if you have a dragon and a massive army. So now, as a war is raging, who's going to raise a hand against her in the future if they see what happens when you go up against the Unsullied and the Dothraki and a dragon. She is untouchable. The problem with fear, it has limitations. It'll only get you far enough. People will do things just because they don't want to die. It doesn't instill loyalty. People do it to protect their own hide. They're not thinking about the cause or doing it because of, of who they're following. And Daenerys was already losing her allies before this. This blind rage next week, you have to assume, the stink eye that Tyrion and Jon have been giving her, they have to turn against her. I'm still not convinced that she's completely doomed, though. No one's heard what she has to say at this point. The last we saw of her was before combat. Since then, it's been riding around on a dragon, and we don't know what's going on in her head. I think there's still an opportunity, maybe not to reconcile, but at least to understand what's going on with Daenerys. And yes, yeah, she's hurt a lot of people, but remember that the Targaryens had a dynasty. 
I mean, they were in charge much longer than any other house. Right now, things are bad, but they have been bad. People tend to think of their own self-interest, especially in Game of Thrones. And I think that there could still be an appeal made to the people remaining. I think it's still in Daenerys' hands. Do I have a lot of hope for episode six? No, <laughs> I don't think she's going to do too well, <laughs> but it's still possible. I mean, I think everybody does this. When you, when you just hope for something or you save for a long time and you have a goal, you know, I, I, as a kid, I want to save up for, for months and months and months. I'm going to get that bicycle I want. You finally get the bike and you're like, oh, all right, I got my bike. Now what? That's Daenerys. She's focused so much on getting control. But to maintain control of a kingdom, you know, not even just a city like King's Landing, you need to have a large policing force. She should have already learned this lesson from Marine. It's comparably easy to conquer a land or a people. Westeros, like Marine, it's an unfamiliar culture. Half the city's inhabitants despises her. In Marine, there was a full contingent of her unsullied troops. So she was at full power, and she wasn't even able to stop an insurgent group, the Sons of the Harpies, from wreaking havoc. They were killing the unsullied. It undermined her, her ability to lead and to rule effectively. So her current force is made up of Northmen, who you have to assume will return to the North once the war is over, or want to. We should probably roast them if they threaten to go up North, but that would be their intent. She has a depleted number of Dothraki and Unsullied, and we know that neither of these two is very well suited for the new role as peacekeepers. So I don't know that she has the force to even logistically keep the city going. There definitely are echoes of Robert Baratheon here. Robert, in a conversation with Ned in season one, said it's easier to win the throne than to stay on it. And Robert was wise enough to leave the governing to the experts most of the time. So he had a hand. He had a small council. He was off hunting boar and drinking wine and banging prostitutes. He wasn't worried about the, the ruling of the kingdom. He left it to the bureaucrats to do. Daenerys is at a decided disadvantage here because who does she have left as a council? She has the force, but I don't know if the brains are there, right? Tyrion mistrusts her, you got to assume at this point, if he's not going to be dead next episode anyway. Jon mistrusts her. Varys is gone. Jorah's gone. Missandei's gone. Who's on her side anymore to sit in that room? And you saw that great scene at Dragonstone where it's just Tyrion and Daenerys, and people have uh, superimposed that with Dragonstone when everyone was first there with, the, with their council. And it was a room full of all these characters that you loved and trusted. There was a glow to it. There was a hope for a brighter tomorrow. And now all that is gone. And I think that might be the key to her downfall is there's no one there who has her back. Well, she's still got Grey Worm. And if you even noticed in the beginning of the episode, this is the first time she doesn't call him Grey Worm. She refers to him by his name. I did. And he doesn't have to wear a helmet anymore. Yeah, he's, you know, he's, he's got special privileges. He's taking John's place. But she's not going to be able to rebuild the forces she needs with fear alone. She's going to need lots and lots and lots of gold. She has to buy an army just like every other ruling family before her. And that's a problem for her because... Last we saw, the Lannisters were run dry. The last box of gold they had went to Braun, and they were paying off the Iron Bank or paying off for the Golden Company. She doesn't have the gold she needs to buy the forces that she really, really desperately now needs. Well, you know, the Iron Bank just lost its number one customer, so they're going to need somewhere to make some investments. Maybe they loan a little bit out to Daenerys, you know, get a little bit back. They're always going to be in business. The, the bankers always win. See, but I, I think we need a separate episode about the Iron Bank. How do they keep rolling here? They keep pouring money into losers. They poured money into Stannis. 
They poured money to Robert. At what point do they collect? The banks make money off the interest. Which family here is paying this interest? Gold aside, she can't even feed her people. Right now, there's a power vacuum at the Reach, which controls most of Westeros food. She hasn't even taken into account completely rebuilding King's Landing. The city's uninhabitable. The walls are destroyed. They're going to need to start over from scratch. And the current condition of the city and with what they've just witnessed, a mass murder, a genocide, I would expect that once the smoke goes away, once the fires burn down, there has to be a mass exodus from the city. I don't think there was going to be anybody left who did survive who would choose to live there. And that's going to make the challenges that she's facing now of leading, winning the trust of the people of King's Landing and the Seven Kingdoms. This is nearly an impossible challenge that she's now facing. As this war broke out, a large portion of the population in King's Landing actually fled to King's Landing for safety, right? So if you have your holdfast or your farm out there in the Westerosi countryside and war breaks out and you've got Sir Gregor coming up on your house or you've got northerners coming in and pillaging, you've got these armies sweeping through, taking food, taking cattle, taking women, taking gold, taking tools. You got to get out of there, right? And you see in early seasons where people are fleeing from the countryside along the King's Road and they're going to, to seek safe haven there. So they absolutely will be wanting to get the hell out of King's Landing after this is all over. So Daenerys' victory means that people can leave the city again. Hopefully for those people, they'll be able to rebuild their lives. It's really the city that took the brunt of the damage. And on the bright side, if they have the same cleanup crew from Winterfell that we had after the long night, we should be in good shape for episode six. We'll be back. The walls will all be up. The Red Keep's going to be back up. Magor's Holdfast will be fixed. It's going to look great. Yeah, Winterfell has those two guys, those two masons. I'm not going to be surprised if we go back to see Winterfell again, the entire wall's back up. Those two guys do good work. Speaking of plot holes, that's a perfect segue into <laughs> some of the issues with the battle at King's Landing. And if you thought that we're going to get through this whole episode without nitpicking anything, you were wrong. But I think these are all fair assessments of what went on. And there's some praise, too. And I'll start off with a little bit of praise. There are these amazing parallels that I think the showrunners try to draw and went completely unappreciated by the audience. And you got to go back to the first sacking of King's Landing or the previous sacking of King's Landing. Ares was in power. Jamie was in the King's Guard. The city is, is holding up and waiting for rescue or reinforcements. And Tywin Lannister shows up and he goes to the gates of King's Landing and he's got 12,000 guys with him. And he says, hey, I'm here. My loyalty is with King Ares. Now, he'd been holding out for a long time, not picking an allegiance in either way, N neither loyalist nor rebel. He says, let me in. Lord Varys, who's there at the time, he tells Ares II, keep the gates closed. This is not good. Grandmaster Pycelle convinces the king to open his gates to Tywin Lannister, and immediately the Lannister forces start sacking the city, killing people of all ages and raping women. And if this sounds familiar, it should, because the saviors, the people there to rescue everyone, are doing exactly what they shouldn't be doing, which is terrorizing everybody. And it's exactly what we saw as Grey Worm and Sir Davos and Jon Snow entered into the gates of King's Landing. And in that story, it ended with Jaime Lannister killing Ares to stop something called the wildfire plot. Ares II was convinced that King's Landing would fall, and he wanted to basically blow it all to hell if that should happen. And you get the faint echo of that in some of those scenes where we do the aerial shots, and as the fire is burning through King's Landing in present day, you see those little pockets of wildfire exploding. I think that was the significance there. 
and what we're seeing here is all these players are just cycling and cycling and cycling. It's the wheel. It's Lord Varys and Grandmaster Pycelle and Jamie Lannister uh, back then killing Ares to protect the people, now saying, I don't give a damn about the people. And I thought it was a really, really beautiful way to make a swirl of a story. Maybe, again, as the emotions kind of calm down a little bit and people go back and watch this episode, they can appreciate little bits like that. Not everyone is good. Not everyone is bad. Everyone is a shade of gray. We like to think of the Starks as honorable, and that's only because we've been following them. If this show started with us following the Lannisters, we would think about Tywin very much the same way. So it's not surprising that now that they're taking King's Landing, that the people who we hold in such high esteem, the Northmen who are honorable, are going to fall apart and sack the city just like anybody else did. That's what's expected. I'd have a different take on the wildfire than you do, though. I think seeing the wildfire cook off in the middle of the city burning from from Drogon and Daenerys's fire was almost a completion of the Targaryen destiny. Ares had promised to burn the city to the ground, and it was almost like, ah, you know what, he didn't do it, but here's Daenerys coming back a couple years later, and she's finishing the job. Big D, on the deep dive from episode four, you went into depth about the Golden Company, their Targaryen roots, and the role that they might play in the finale or the conclusion of Game of Thrones. In this episode, we just saw them fall apart. A lot of people were really upset about that. <laughs> I, I really, really enjoyed seeing them fall apart. I think it was because it surprised me. We heard the rumbling, uh, and then the door just explodes. The gate explodes, and, and they're consumed in fire. I think mostly that was because... I loved how explosive a show of force it was by Drogon. I think until that point in the show, we didn't realize just how destructive he could be. And there's an aftermath where you see Tyrion walk in through that burning chasm of the gates where, where they once were. And his small stature compared to these huge gates of King's Landing, I thought it was really beautifully shot. Regardless of whether people thought the story made sense or not, the cinematography and the effects, I think, were greatly appreciated. But I wanted to get your take on the Golden Company thing. Were you disappointed in it? I thought it was kind of funny, and I don't think a lot of things are funny. Not funny in a ha-ha kind of way, funny in a sad way. Last week, we were saying how outmanned and outgunned you know, the good guy forces were. You know, The depleted Dothraki, the depleted North, one dragon. We were like, oh, this is going to be such a fight against the Lannister army. But that lopsided field of battle quickly turned into more than even just a fair fight. The outcome was never in question. I think that was a huge mistake in this episode. Let's take the the sea, you know, the long night, Winterfell. The Dothraki, they get their swords lit up. We're like, yeah, we're feeling good. They ride off into the night. The flame goes out. Boo, we feel bad. <laughs> the, tides, <laughs> the tide has to constantly turn in battle where it's looking good. Then it takes a turn for the worse. That never happened in this episode. I would have rather had the Golden Company, who is a legendary, formidable fighting force. We should have seen them on the field of battle. They should have come out. They should have been you know, really showing us, hey, they're worth their medal. They're worth the price that they paid. And then it somehow it turns. I know you couldn't do that because you can't have a hand-to-hand combat situation or an engagement area. And then Drogon blows the gate down. He'd burn half the Northmen along with it. So you needed that distance. But I think you cheapened them. There was this huge buildup. It was disappointing, but at least we didn't have CGI elephants. Burning elephants, maybe that's why the show decided not to incorporate them. 
When you described these guys to me on the deep dive, I thought we were going to see like these badass knights that were just like an elite fighting force. It was like a bunch of extras with spears. The, the uniforms didn't even look good. No, it was, you know, they had those nice like suede looking boots. They looked the part. It looked like an entire infantry of Oberon, the Viper. They were, you, you figured they were going to go out there twirling their spears. They'd be deadly. They did no honor to the name. They completely wasted that opportunity. We should have seen them in battle, and that would have made the victory that much even more sweeter. Instead of being like, it was never in question. I brought up the powering up of Drogon's fire. Nobody even brings up the powering up of the, of the force. Dudes in those close-up scenes, the swords are going like two-thirds of the way from a guy's shoulder, almost cutting him in half through ribs, spine, their back. These dudes are taking on seven, eight Lannister soldiers at a time. The Dothraki are riding through the streets and just completely bisecting people. There was something going on. I don't know if there was some some performance-enhancing drugs that they took. This battle was never truly in question, and I think we needed that to build attention. One of the balancing factors that we saw in the lead-up into Episode 5 was the Scorpion 2.0. We saw Euron take out Rhaegal with one, and we thought this was going to make it a tricky proposition to use air power against King's Landing. And a lot of viewers have complained that Scorpions were highly accurate, then suddenly they couldn't hit shit. But I took it conversely. I found it strange that they ever were able to hit anything. You see Braun hit Drogon at the loot train at Blackwater Rush uh, with the Scorpion 1.0, right? And it hits Drogon and Drogon's like, ow, but I'm okay. Not fatal. So they make a bigger one. And I understand that Rhaegal never saw it coming. It still felt a little bit weird to me that he took like three direct hits at sea. Let's say we believe that because he was injured and exhausted. He shouldn't have been flying, right? Not ideal conditions. So people are like, well, what now suddenly? I think the King B said, you know, Daenerys took overnight flight lessons to learn how to be a better pilot. I don't think that's the case. The reasonable explanation here is that Daenerys now knows about the Scorpion 2.0. She knows its capability. She knows what the bolts look like. She has observed that two things it can't do is turn very quickly. And anybody with any knowledge of the sun knows that looking into it is kind of difficult. Yes, she should have attacked at night like Aegon the Conqueror did at Harrenhal. You've got a black dragon. They don't have searchlights or flares. Hit him up at night. But that's not what she did. She knows Drogon better than anyone. She believes in him. <laughs> and I think that confidence comes through in the fact that she knows this dragon with a pilot, which Rhaegal did not have, and good visibility can wipe out the Iron Fleet and wipe out the Scorpions. I thought it was fitting that people have said these dragons are underpowered, 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 so vulnerable. And now you get to see what they're actually capable of. This is the reason you have an HD television set in the surround sound system. But if you think this scene can't get any better, I challenge you. Go to the Shadow on TV Twitter page. Uh, there is a video that I added some audio to. It starts with Drogon coming out of the sun. I added the overlay of uh, Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone from Top Gun. It goes perfectly. It pairs with the scene. You get a little bit of Maverick. He's he's dodging the bolts. Highway to the danger zone. It is so good. So good. Another complaint that people had was that everybody managed to find everybody within the city. And I agreed with this at first because King's Landing is a big place. How the hell did everybody find each other? Uh, when you think about it a little bit longer, though, it makes sense. Arya 
Jamie and the Hound all have intimate knowledge of King's Landing. Arya was skipping around uh, when she was living there and, you know, chasing cats and jumping in and out of uh, windows. Jamie obviously was a Lannister living there as well. And the Hound uh, being a guard for the Lannisters, they all have intimate knowledge of King's Landing. So it's plausible. You would know where people would be. It's, it's easy to anticipate where Cersei probably is. And if you look at who don't know their way around, that makes sense too. So Sir Davos and Jon Snow and the Unsullied and Daenerys, they're not really that intimate with the workings of King's Landing. And so they were lost at several points. Uh, th- there was one laughable scene that I hope, whether you loved the show or you hated it, Jamie is trying to get into the gates of King's Landing. It's manned by Lannister soldiers. He's like, hey, hey, Lannister soldier, Lannister soldier. And he's waving his gold hand like it's a backstage pass at a concert. He's like, hey, look at the hand. Look at the hand. Look at the hand. I just thought it was ridiculous. You thought that was ridiculous? How about the Jamie versus Euron fight, the Battle of the Golden Hand? I think Game of Thrones screwed up here because they grossly overestimated Euron's popularity. I think like two years ago, they're like, look, people love this Euron guy. He's swashbuckling. He's fun. Let's let him bang the queen and have some good sword fights. People listening to podcasts and reading the books, like we're in the minority. It's quite possible that the general public really enjoyed this sort of thing. Maybe they like Pirates of the Caribbean or whatever. And I especially didn't appreciate how, once again, Jamie just walked away from a fatal situation. Like he's been like stabbed in both kidneys. He's somehow inexplicably walking like a mile across King's Landing, up and down stairs to finally find Cersei. But I didn't let that get to me too badly because although the fight was complete bullshit, you're on just showing up exactly at the right spot at the right time, Jamie not dying. Uh, you can forgive those things because the episode was about Daenerys and Cersei. It wasn't about Jamie Lannister. He was a side character. My only problem with the fight, besides just the the ridiculous situation, you know, the unlikelihood that somehow Euron, the only survivor of the the Iron Fleet, you presume that he would swim to the to the closest land so that he doesn't drown. And we're going to believe that the Greyjoys, they're good swimmers, that he's going to swim to the closest land and get out of the water. It just happens to be the exact location where Jamie is walking in. And somebody on Twitter today said, well, Euron knows you know, how to get into the back ways. He wants to get up to Cersei. Come on, this, this doesn't make logical sense. But there's a couple tropes during the fight, which I don't remember seeing in the last couple seasons, at least, pushing each other back and forth. Jamie drops the sword. Then there's a close-up. Boosh, the sword hits the ground. Jamie's wounded. He's getting to his knees. He's slowly crawling. And then Euron comes over. Didn't we learn from Oberon in the mountain? You don't assume that somebody's down just because they're laying on the ground. Of course, the tables turn. Jamie kills him. And as laughable as the fight was, I did like the close-up on Euron. I'm the man who killed Jamie Lannister. I thought that was worth it. Uh, but the, the entire situation surrounding the fight, still ridiculous. A gut wound in this time and with this level of, of medical ability, you'd say they were dead. But I got to remind you then, do you remember Arya getting gutted as well and then falling into that dirty-ass river? She's dead, but somehow she miraculously shook it off and came back. So as much as we don't want to say there's no way Euron survived, he could. Maybe Jamie and Cersei, they survived in a small pocket. Maybe they're going to get dug out. If you don't see someone die definitively in the show, they could be living. I mean, for God's sake, the mountain took a giant piece of ceiling, like a column of concrete that was maybe two tons, fell, hit him in the back. I know he's the undead mountain. 
He, you know, he's, he's supernatural bone and human flesh can only hold so much. He would have been pancaked. He could have survived the fall out the window. I don't know. Anything is possible. If we don't see them put in the ground or in pieces or their head exploded, they very well could be back next episode. And Big D, we can't talk about deaths without talking about character arcs. This has become the buzzword for Game of Thrones. I can't count how many times I saw tweets, emails, uh, direct messages with character arc. Character arcs were cut short. Character arcs were thrown away. So I thought I would do everyone a favor by exploring the magical world of character arcs. I think what people are trying to say is characters that they found compelling didn't have endings that they liked. But certainly these characters had full character arcs. Uh, there's a writer, uh, Luke Edley, who wrote a great blog post about different types of character arc. And it was very easy once you understand the character arc to match them to the characters in Game of Thrones that they make sense for. And in doing so, you can really see who had true character arcs and who didn't. And also, those understandings of character arcs can kind of make sense of why the what happened to the characters happened to the characters. I want to start with the one that everybody seems to recognize. And it's the one that Pixar uses and the one that Disney uses. The transformation character arc. Some people call it the hero's journey, right? Everyone's familiar with this one. You take a, a normal protagonist... And they have an awe, like a, a mystical change in their personality. And they go from underdog into like the hero, right? And that's why they call it the hero's journey. So you see this almost every Disney character does Aladdin, the little mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, right? It's all transformation arcs. And the best example of a transformation arc in Game of Thrones is Jon Snow. His is classic transformation. So he's set up as the bastard, and he starts out with the worst fate of anybody from the Stark kids. But inside, he's a Targaryen and a Stark of royal lineage. He's a chosen one. He's a hero. And what's interesting about Jon that people don't talk about a lot is that we call him a dum-dum, but everything that happens to him and everywhere he goes and every mistake he makes he's still successful. It's a little weird. You know, he goes up to the wall, he becomes successful. He goes north of the wall, he becomes successful. He gets killed, he's still successful. And people have asked after episode five, why John acts so weird in King's Landing, why he's trying to stop the violence and doing dumb things amid all this chaos. What the show is trying to tell us is that no degree of anger or pain or mistreatment can make John bad. He's not like Daenerys. He's not like even Grey Worm, who is beholden to duty. He's only transforming into what he must become because it's his destiny. So it's a clear marker there. And another example of that is Arya. She also fits in that category, right? That there was something special about her from the beginning. And no matter what happened in the world around her, she was destined to survive and become that special thing. It's not the events around her. It's her affecting the world. Now, a twist on that is the maturity arc, and that's kind of the, the opposite of that, right? So as you see the transformation arc being internal out, the maturity arc is external in. So this is a sort of growth in the face of external factors, like you see in war movies, right? Where a guy goes to war, a normal guy, there's nothing special about him, but the war changes who he is, and it causes a remarkable change in his physical uh, appearance or his personality. Something different is happening there. It's like struggling with demons or disadvantages that you have to battle against to, to make it to the top. And Jamie Lannister is a maturity story. He's not a transformation story. And I think that's what people are getting wrong about the show. They want him to transform because there's something special about him uh, that's going to make him a hero. And we kept talking about his redemption arc, and I'm just as guilty of this as anybody else. 
But Jamie wasn't up there fighting the dead because he was a particularly good guy or that he was destined for greatness. He was fighting the dead because the things that he saw from the world around him compelled him to do so. And then he slept with Brienne because he saw true beauty in her. That's the maturity arc. The maturity arc is that Jamie, through his life experiences, understands the world differently. But the core of him is unchanged. And that's why he has to go back to Cersei. And I think that falls upon us, the viewer. When I was recommending the show to a friend, I said, this is how you know the show's great. There's going to be somebody who paralyzes a child to hide the fact he's having sex with a sister. Then you'll come to love him. Once we started to love Jamie, the things he did that were still true to his character, we kind of brushed it off because we wanted him to be good. We wanted to believe he was on the right track. He's like the family member who has a drinking problem. We want to see. We want to project our wishes upon them. But in the end, Jamie was still that dude. Jamie was ready to kill every man living child within the gates of River Run if it took him to get back to Cersei. He's willing to do whatever. And we only wanted to believe he was better. And Jamie said it himself. I am a bad man. I am a hateful person. Those moments that he spent at Winterfell were that fulfillment of his maturity arc in the sense that he saw what true good people were and he found a place among them for a moment, but he realized that wasn't his place. That's what his story was. And once you accept that, he becomes a much more beautiful and acceptable character. Now, a different type of character arc is the decline. And the decline arc is what we usually associate with tragedy, right? So you take a character and they make a series of poor choices or they have a series of failings that ultimately doom them. And they jeopardize themselves and the people around them in the process. If you think about Shakespeare, uh, like Hamlet or King Lear, this is normally where we see the decline arc. And normally this is associated with death or falling into madness. You know, people want to go straight to Daenerys, but I want to talk about Cersei actually, because Cersei had the opportunity several times to reign in peace for at least a generation. So she made key mistakes that ultimately led to losing everything. And the biggest mistake is what everyone credits her with and what Jamie sees in her is loving her children. She loved her children too much. So Joffrey was a horrible king. She saw the abuses that he was carrying out against people like Sansa and everyone around him. And she knew that, but she loved her child. And so she allowed it. People blame Cersei for Ned Stark dying. Joffrey is the reason that Ned Stark died. Cersei would have preferred that he not die. She understood the consequences of that. So at the Sept of Baylor, that was Joffrey's call. Yeah, Cersei was completely willing to let Ned take the black. And that was the agreement that they had had. And Joffrey at the last minute decided to flip the script. And so that movement meant war. And then there was a chance for peace with Rob Stark, and she rejected it. And then there was a chance for peace with Daenerys, and she rejected it again. And so we shouldn't blame Cersei for what she did, because Cersei certainly paid the price every time she made a decision. It was decline, decline, decline. Her situation got worse and worse. The peak of her reign was when Joffrey was in power, and she could have acted as queen regent disregarded everything he had to say and really ruled, if not benevolently, at least peacefully for a time. She slept with men she didn't want to. She endured that walk of atonement. She lost her children. Everything in this storyline is a classic decline. It's important to note that the classic decline doesn't have to only apply to a negative character. Another character that we consider a hero had that decline. That was Ned Stark. Ned Stark made a series of bad decisions because of his honor. And you can feel that struggle in the first season 
uh, when you're just like, Ned, just do this and you can get out of this. Ned, and then when he finally does flip and give up his honor, that's the fatal mistake, right? So, so in essence, uh, you don't have to be a bad guy to have a decline. But in this case, his storyline was fulfilled. His arc was fulfilled. And so was Cersei's. Everything that eventually came back and got her was her own doing. Remember the Faith Militant? She's the reason they rose to power. The High Sparrow, she put him in place. And it came right around just bitter in the ass. The thing she needed to do to acquire and keep power and consolidate it was the same thing that in the end helped her lose it all. Those three character arcs are the ones that most people are aware of. But there's another one that's really, really tricky. And it's called the Alteration Arc. And people confuse this with the Maturity Arc. So the Maturity Arc is what Jamie had. But the alteration arc is more about the character changing their perspective, but their personality or being doesn't necessarily change. And I think understanding the alteration arc explains Varys' character arc. It's valid to ask, how did this guy who is arguably the most clever and sneaky guy who's always ahead of the game and always the best informed, so careless? I mean, he is the master of whispers. I think what happened is Varys underwent an alteration arc. He didn't find some strength in himself during the show, like some brave act. And events didn't change his behavior drastically up until his death. He was still uh, always in the shadows. He never directly deposed any leader. And he didn't really make any big mistakes. He always played it smart. So you're left to wonder what happened here. And I think what happened is Varys's perspective changed. So his last hope after hope after hope after hope, monarch to monarch to monarch, was that Daenerys was the one. And it was one last hope too many. And I think his perspective changed when he recognized before all of us that Daenerys was what she was. And he saw that. And he thought it's time for something different to happen. Maybe he was sloppy on purpose. Maybe he was done with secrets. There's a possibility that he sacrificed himself to show Tyrion and Jon who they were dealing with. So he wrote the letters. You notice when they came for him with the chains, he took his jewelry off. He accepted his fate. And he says it himself. He says there's no living person who's who, who and I think he said it best himself. There's no living person who's known more kings, queens, rulers than he has. And through that long history, he's ridden the wave. He's stayed malleable. He's not chosen a side. He's ridden it until he could find somebody who he had faith in. He had faith in Daenerys. But the big change came, and why there was such an abrupt turn for him was learning that Jon Snow was the rightful heir. Here, finally is an option that, like Tyrion said, somebody where he can take a stand. He can make a choice. He can pick someone. He would have stayed by Daenerys' side. He would have rode it out. He would have ridden out even her burning King's Landing to the ground until that one right choice was there. If Jon never came up, he would have stayed by her side until he found the one that he could place his bet on, the one he could believe in. Jon was it, and unfortunately, he found it at a moment where where Daenerys is already unstable. She's made the decision. He can't play the the master of whisperers and work things slowly over time in the background. He was finally forced to come out of the shadows and make a public open play. And he tried his best. He took his jewelry off, said, hey, I lost. I hope you're right and I'm wrong. He had finally made that stand. He had finally picked who he thought was best for the realm. And unfortunately, there wasn't time for him to work his magic. And I think that Tyrion and John have to think back at that moment when they watched him be executed and really question themselves. 
is what Daenerys did in King's Landing that much of a surprise after you saw what she did to Varys? Now, we said that he deserved to be punished, certainly. He was being treasonous. And Daenerys could have potentially been poisoned by him if you subscribe to that idea. They saw this person that they had planned with, that they were friends with, executed in front of them uh, when there were certainly other options. He could be exiled. He could take the black, whatever. Instead, uh, he was killed in front of them. And Daenerys even made the threat that this is what happens when people hear that your truth. This is the consequence. We were just talking about how how the audience, how we're looking at Jamie. Like, oh, come on. He's not a bad guy. Yay. He saved Brienne from getting raped. He's a good guy. That's John looking at Daenerys. That's Tyrion looking at Daenerys. Oh, come on. She's a good ruler, guys. Don't worry. She only burned the Tarleys. They deserved it. Come on. We can't be mad at them for staying by our side when we're doing the same thing. And one final note on character arcs, because George R. R. Martin is so good at writing these. You look at a novel from him versus a novel from most other writers, and most of the writers, you're going to have the protagonist will have an arc, maybe the antagonist will, maybe one of their ally, but there's all these arcs streaking across the pages of George R. R. Martin's work. It's important to note that not everyone gets an arc, though. Only dynamic characters do. And a dynamic character is somebody who's making a change, right? And they shouldn't be confused with a round character. So everyone's familiar with a flat character. It's kind of that, you know, they pop up on the page, they do a thing. You don't really know too much about them. They're not a three-dimensional person, right? But a round character has all the personality traits of a fully fleshed character. And they might be super charming and they might be beloved, but they don't undergo any true development in the story. And if you see a round character and they don't change and they don't develop, you shouldn't be mad about it. Not everybody gets an arc. I think a prime example of that is Hodor. <laughs> I think the saddest moment in the show is Hodor's death or perhaps you know the condition that was, that was uh, thrown upon him by Bran. But in both of those cases, as much as we love Hodor, he doesn't undergo a massive change. You can't complain and say, well, Hodor's story arc was never complete. I think Hodor deserved a hero's journey. I think he he deserved to find some secret ability that made him special. I am so glad they didn't make it that he became some sort of like a giant warrior type, like a counter to the mountain or something. I was worried about that from season one. I'm so glad that they kept him that that peaceful giant. So the too long didn't read version of it is just because we care about someone a ton doesn't mean he or she has a significant character arc. And just because someone has a significant character arc doesn't mean it's the type of character arc that we want. This this might be a good time and a good way to get out of this episode and to, to start thinking about the small council to see. We had a lot of deaths on screen. There was just wanton destruction, murder everywhere. Maybe we could take a second here and, and decide the people who died really deserved it. Did Varys deserve to die? No, no way. He, look, I mean, he, was he a treasonous guy? Yes. Uh, <laughs> did he cross the line with Daenerys? Yes. But there were so many other solutions in killing this guy. He's a, a soft-spoken uh, eunuch. He's tired of it all. Do you think he's really going to conspire against her if he if he leaves? Oh, you're a fool. Of course he would. Varys deserves to die. He's one of those that you need to kill. The master of whispers doesn't stop whispering if you put him in jail. He's going to probably talk his way out. The guards going to end up killing you. You don't trust him. Yes, 100% he needs to die. Deserved it. And he took it like a eunuch. <laughs> Next, we have the Lannister soldiers. Gene, did the Lannister general soldiers on the ground, did they deserve to die? 
I think for their helmet design alone, they all deserved to perish horrible deaths. When they dropped their swords, I'm like, are they seriously going to let these motherfuckers walk away? I was so glad. <laughs> when Grey Worm throws that spear through the guy's chest, I was like, fuck yeah, kill them all. Uh, I don't think they deserve to die. The general soldier, they're only following orders. The leadership, you know, like, like the U.S. military, most of the guys who go into it, they go into it out of need. I went in because I couldn't pay for college. I needed some help. So it's not the general soldier's fault. I don't think they needed to die, but I do understand wanting to make a point. What do we think about the Northern Rapist? First of all, I thought he was Aaron Rodgers because I was spending the whole episode looking for Aaron Rodgers. And I was like, oh, there's Aaron Rodgers. It was not Aaron Rodgers. Uh, Definitely, he deserved to die. Uh, If not for the horrible act of attempting to rape somebody, for the idiocy of trying to do it in front of John, who is arguably the most moral character uh, in the entire series. I was so glad to see him die. And John even tries to hold him against the wall, and the asshole still tries to fight. But John throws him against the wall, and the guy looks at him kind of like, oh, man, oh, I'm sorry. And then John's like, oh, 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 stabs him. Rapists die 100% of the time. Next up, we have the general city folk. These are the innocent Uh, men women and children of king's landing just trying to go about eke out an existence in king's landing did they deserve to die gene i think from the instacast i might have been misunderstood when i said i understood what daenerys was doing and that she was angry and that the people of king's landing are not all innocent no i don't think that people should in general die at war i do think that this is a cautionary tale from George R. R. Martin and the series in general, that war sucks. I think it's one of the things that Game of Thrones has done so well. Every battle situation, horrible things are happening to the normal people, right? And there's a prevalent theme there that no matter who you are, if you are of a lower station in life, everything sucks exponentially more for you. Yeah, and I think the lesson we should learn from this scene is that in any military operation in an urban environment, Hold fast. Stay in your safe, protected place. Arya comes upon that woman and child. Hey, we have to keep moving. We have to keep moving. Don't keep moving. There's a dragon shooting fire down the streets. There's a chance you're going to survive. And if that woman had listened to her, she would have survived. But no, no, the general people of King's Landing did not deserve to die. Uh, Next up, we have uh, Jamie Lannister. So Jamie fights his way back into the city. Tyrion decides to set him free. Probably not a smart move after Daenerys had just said, fail me one more time, you're done. Did Jamie deserve to die, Gene? I mean, he deserved to die after being stabbed twice in the gut. I just don't understand what the whole point of that was. It would have made a lot more sense if he found his way to Cersei. They were both of sound body, and then they just died the way that Cersei died. I, I understand the whole point of him getting killed. But no, I really kind of wanted Jamie and Cersei to get on a little dinghy and get the hell out of King's Landing. Uh, you are wrong again. Jamie 100% deserved to die. He paralyzed a child. Let's not forget that. Just because he did some nice things along the way, he he paid some community service, does not undo that. And Jamie deserves to die for, for not alone just being stupid. Being fucking stupid. Going back to Cersei, forgiving her again. That paralyzing a child and stupid combines for 100% you're, you deserve to die. Also, I think he raped Cersei next to the dead body of her child. And next up, we have his sister and lover, Cersei. Everybody's pretty much universally wanted Cersei to die, but I'm just going to ask you anyway. Gene, did Cersei deserve to die? No. 
Categorically, no. No, listen, listen, listen. Somebody made a great parallel between Cersei and Walter White. And why is it that we root for Walter White, but we root against Cersei? Walter White is responsible for a lot of shitty things. By the way, if you haven't seen Breaking Bad, I spoiler alert, Walter White, he turns. Cersei has always been about trying to keep the power for her family and trying to keep her children safe and trying to preserve legacy as she learned from her father, Tywin. She is mercurial. She is emotional. She is violent. You know, as you said, Varys would never stop plotting. I think Cersei, given the opportunity to take her baby, get on a boat and disappear forever and just live somewhere away from it all, would have been perfectly happy to do so and never hurt anybody again. Wow, you've got me here. The Walter White comparison. Because Walter White, he did poison a child. Yeah. He is capable of pretty much anything. He's killed people to protect his own hide. Cersei did that. Uh, you know what? I'm going to say, fuck it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respect Cersei's game. Cersei played, she played balls to the wall. She told Ned in season one, you play the game or you die. She played it. She deserved it. I wouldn't have minded to see her get away with it. I think she deserved to live. Plus, anybody who has to have sex with Euron Greyjoy deserves, I mean, that, that should be an instant party. Oh, gross oh that's like you know after you go to the beach for a day of like day drinking and you go home and you just smell like a mix of sunscreen salt water and sand oh that's what having sex with your own gray joy would be like <laughs> god that'd be gross chafing Ooh. okay let's end this list gene the one loyal person to stand by cersei's side to the very end kyburn I think Kyburn was my favorite death of the episode. It was so satisfying. Yes, a hundred times yes. He's he's the worst. Kyburn was basically healed up uh, by Talisa, and he survives all that. He goes into service uh, for the Lannisters, builds the mountain, is a complete cock. And people wrote in and were like, "Oh, maybe Kyburn's got a redemption arc. Maybe he's going to turn on Cersei at the last second or something like that." Nope. Turns out he didn't. He's kind of the worst. I really don't like the guy it was very satisfying that he had to be the one to deliver the news to cersei that uh, king's landing was falling and that all was lost it was, it was great to watch but absolutely if anybody deserves to die it's kyburn Ooh, I, I enjoyed when when pycelle died i didn't enjoy kyburn as much because kyburn you know what he was loyal you know cersei saved him she gave him a chance he was gonna ride or die with her but it was classic to watch him when he lost control of the mountain when Cersei, when Cersei said, hey, get back here, protect me. And he's like, Sir Gregor, Sir Gregor, you will obey. And he just slams his head against the wall. Uh, yeah, he deserved to die. You know, it's anybody who plays with nature and tries to bring back the dead. I think that seals your fate. But uh, yeah, a lot of deaths. I, I think we got a couple more coming next episode. There's no reason to think we wouldn't end with the streets flowing with blood like everyone feared. And that's a perfect way to end this episode of The Deep Dive as we roll into the Small Council on Friday. So be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram, at ShadOnTV. On Facebook, just search for Shad on TV Podcast. The website is ShadOnTV.com. If you'd like to email us for the Small Council, uh, the emails are rolling in uh, as we speak. Just email us at host at ShadOnTV.com with your thoughts on this episode as we go into the finale of the series. Also, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, just call 914-719-SHAT. 
tell us your thoughts there. We've had some great ones over the weeks, and we are uh, compiling them into uh, perhaps a best of, or at least the weirdest of. And wherever we're fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify, and YouTube. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review that helps the podcast grow. If you'd like to help out financially, uh, help us keep the lights on, pay for hosting and audio processing, uh, you can contribute at chatontv.com slash PayPal slash Venmo or slash Amazon, depending on your payment of choice. And if you're getting antsy waiting for the small council to come out, remember, we also have Chat the Movies, our sister podcast where we cover 80s and 90s movies. And as Game of Thrones draws to an end, we will continue doing that. Uh, it is our first love, uh, and we would love to share that with you, where we get to loosen up a little bit and have some fun with the audience. We'd love if you joined us there at chatthemovies.com. So on behalf of my co-hosts, Big D, Dick Ebert, and the King B, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Friday for the Game of Thrones Small Council Listener Mail Edition. <laughs>